Welcome to episode 109 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's Word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want us to examine the repentance and restoration of King David. Let's dive in. In the last episode, we talked about the sin and the downfall of David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And again, it's the story of David and Bathsheba. David's up on the rooftop, a place where he was actually not supposed to be. It's not that it's bad to be on the rooftop, but he was supposed to be with his men at war. And here he is one night up on the rooftop and he sees this beautiful lady bathing, which is why we call her Bathsheba. (laughs) Okay, that's actually not why we call her Bathsheba. That was her name. But here she is, she's bathing and he's filled with lust. He goes and sends men to really drag her to the palace. He sleeps with her. And as you all know, the end result of that was she became pregnant. He ended up killing Uriah, her husband. And of course, this whole thing, as the conclusion of chapter 11 says, that this thing that David did displease the Lord. Now, if you want to go into details about this whole thing, it's really a powerful meditation in my mind of just the tragedy and the significance of sin. That so oftentimes we just say, well, it's just one little thing. It's it's not that big of a deal. It's just one sin. Nobody actually knows about it. But in reality, sin is significant. And if we desire to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we must take sin seriously. And it's interesting that the summary of this whole thing that David did is that it displeased the Lord. Now, I mentioned this at the end of the last episode, but this whole idea of being displeased literally means to tremble or to quiver. In other words, here's this thing that that David did, and it was so repulsive. It was so just grievous and sad that, that here is God. It's like he's trembling or quivering with displeasure or just sickness on the inside for all that David did. There's a great unknown quote, but it says this, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. What a great summary and declaration of sin. And that's obviously evidenced here in the life of David. Now, as you come into second Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, this great prophet of the Lord, again, I'm a huge fan of the prophet Nathan, I'm biased, but I really like Nathan. But the Lord sends Nathan to David. And it's interesting. I mentioned this in the last episode, but we know that at least it has been nine months. So by the time that Nathan confronts David, the baby is born. And so most scholars say there's been anywhere from nine months, potentially even up to two years where David's heart has been hardened. And obviously we would understand that there's no Psalms being written that there's no praise and worship going on in the life of David. Why? Because sin has literally hardened his heart and has literally shut him down. Now, it's interesting to me that when Nathan goes and confronts David, that he doesn't just wag a finger in his face and say, hey, you sinned against the Lord. Rather, he literally uses a story and God takes this story and uses it to soften David's heart. And again, it's something that David would have been well acquainted with because of David's previous life as a shepherd. So here's Nathan and he comes to David and he says that there were two men in one city, one rich and one poor. 
And the rich men had exceeding flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and with his children and ate his own food and drink and his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. In other words, this little sheep was so precious. It was one of the family. But as we as we continue in the story, we find out that the rich man had a guest coming into town. And so he snuck over to this poor man's house, grabbed the little sheep and used it as a sacrifice to feed his guest. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, it says that David's anger was greatly aroused against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And in verse 7, Nathan looks squarely in the face of David and says, you are that man. And of course, as you follow through chapter 12, you find that that David's heart is really broken. He just starts to anguish and he goes, I literally sinned against the Lord in verse 13. And it's interesting that though the Lord puts away David's sin, and even though he is forgiven, it's interesting that David still has a ton of consequences that he has to live with. In Nathan's declaration of David, specifically in chapter 12, verse 10, the statement is made that now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And it's interesting that as you begin to follow the the repercussions and the consequences of David's sin, that not only does this child that was born to Bathsheba die, but you start following the, the family of David and you start seeing a major breakdown at this point. For example, David's daughter Tamar is is uh, raped by her her half brother Amnon, and then Amnon is murdered by Absalom, and then Absalom rebels and um, starts to kind of try to thwart the whole kingdom and tries to become king himself. And then there's the whole curse of Shimei. There's the rebellion of Adonijah with Joab, and it just <laughs> you just walk through the rest of David's life. It's just like problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. And all of it seems like it can be traced to this one single circumstance. Oh, it was just one little sin, but it wasn't just one little sin. It was, it was this grievance to God. And you recognize that sin is significant, that we in our human mentality may say, well, it's just one time. It's not that big of a deal. And yet the consequences, yes, God forgives. And that is so amazing to me. But yet David still had to live with the consequences and it literally caused a disruption of his family. It caused a breakdown of the kingdom and just travesty after travesty happened because of the sin. So I want to ask you, is there sin in your life that has not yet been dealt with? Is there something that you're holding on to? Or is there that little secret sin or that habitual thing that you've kind of hidden in the closet and you don't want anybody to know about? And you're just like, well, at least God will forgive me. It's interesting that Paul asked the question in Romans, should we keep on sinning that God's grace may abound? Because obviously the thought process was, well, obviously the more sin, the more grace that you know is kind of dumped out upon the thing. So, hey, I want more grace. So maybe if I keep on sinning, I'll get more grace. And Paul goes, what are you thinking? Should we keep on sinning that God's grace may abound? No, no, that's not the way you go about it. That God's grace is sufficient, but don't keep on sinning so that you can keep grabbing a hold of grace. Just grab a hold of the grace. 
So if you find yourself in a situation where you have something that you've been harboring or you've been something that you've been hiding or some habitual thing that that has not been dealt with, can I encourage you to bring that to the cross of Christ and recognize that God is faithful and he's loving and he's willing to forgive. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you realize that we should not keep living in sin, that we weren't made to live under the tyranny and the thumb and the chains of sin, that you are meant to walk in the freedom and the triumph of Christ Jesus and all that he has done and accomplished upon the cross. So if you have sin, bring it to the cross of Christ, throw it at his feet, and in confession and repentance, say, God, I can't have this in my life any longer, and I literally give it to you, and I repent of it, which again is this whole idea of turning your back upon that action or that sin and living a different way. That it's not just merely saying, well, I'm sorry for my sins, I hope I can do better next time. This is literally a turning of your life. This is a this is a repentance. This is a this is a turn, a 180 in saying, hey, I'm going to live completely different. I'm going to live in the supply, in the provision, in the grace that God has given me over this junk. And what an amazing reality we have that we can live in victory and triumph. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not saying that you'll never make another you know, sinful mistake or a problem or that kind of thing. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Obviously, we're going to have to keep walking in forgiveness and repentance. But you realize that our hands are not to be, our lives are not to be shackled. Oh, hey, we're not to be under the thumbprint. Hey, we are not to live under the tyranny of sin any longer. Sin should have no more dominion in your life. According to Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8, that there is a triumph in Christ Jesus, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus that we can walk in victory and triumph and hope and freedom and peace. Oh, what an amazing reality in Christ Jesus. Well, I want to look at Psalm 51 with you for just a few moments. Now, here is David's cry. Here is his prayer, if you will, after he's been confronted by Nathan over the sin of Bathsheba. Now, I think it's a huge encouragement just to remind us that David was chosen to be the future king because he was a man after God's own heart. And yet we are told after this whole incident with the sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, the breakdown of this whole thing, we are told in Acts 13 verse 22 that David was a man after God's own heart. So there seems like there's this grand restoration that has happened in the life of David that has taken him from he was a man after God's own heart to a man of selfishness and just sinful activity that God restored him back to a place that he was before. I think that is so significant for us to remember that, hey, if we found ourselves in a place where we have sinned, that it's not like, oh, no, I'll never have another chance again. Oh, no, woe is me. I'm done for. No, the cross of Christ is sufficient. The blood of Christ is what we need to really forgive us of our sins and so that we can walk in the freedom and the righteousness that he has offered in Christ Jesus. That, that he has taken on my sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that I may take on his righteousness, that I become a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. 
that what I, what was happening in my life beforehand, hey, that has been done away with. There's been a line that's been drawn in the sand and I'm a brand new person in him. So that there there is reconciliation. There is a restoration that can happen in our lives if we repent and we confess and we believe and we put our hope and trust in Christ Jesus. Now, again, we may have to deal with consequences, but that we can be forgiven and we can be new creatures walking forward. But I just want to look at the first three verses of Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is just a phenomenal passage, and I would encourage you at some point to to do a study of it. Um, I love the passages like verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Hey, don't cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. I mean, I just, this whole psalm is phenomenal. But I want to look at the first three verses just to kind of give you a taste of what David is crying out for. He says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Uh, really quickly, that idea of have mercy is this plea to say, hey, would you be gracious? Hey, would you show favor and pity upon me? And David is asking for mercy according to God's loving kindness, according to his goodness and according to God's kindness and faithfulness and, and, and favor. And in fact, 53 of the Psalms use that word loving kindness in the Hebrew And in fact, if you turn over to Psalm 136, every single verse has this word that a statement is made and then your mercy or your loving kindness endures forever. And it's this echoing psalm where where the person speaking and then the congregation repeats back just a reminder that, that God's loving kindness endures forever and ever and ever. And so David is petitioning according to God's loving kindness, according to God's mercy and faithfulness. God, according to your character, according to your integrity, according to your life, hey, would you have mercy upon me, O God? And then he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. In other words, hey, God, you have this abundance, this multitude, this numerous or this plenty of tender mercies. And again, this idea of tender mercies, it comes from this idea of the the bowels or the heart, which is the seat of the emotions. So in other words, Hey, according to the innermost part of who you are, God, according to your tenderness and your love and your emotion, hey, you are so great and so grand. So according to your mercies, hey, would you blot out my transgressions? That word blot out has this idea of to wipe out or to obliterate or to exterminate, to destroy or to abolish. And that word transgression can either mean transgression or rebellion. Sometimes it's even translated sin in the Old Testament. So it's this idea that David is crying out to God, hey, God, according to your character, according to your very person, I'm I'm just asking you, according to your mercy, hey, would you come and would you obliterate? Would you blot out? Would you destroy the rebellion, that sin that is within me? And then he moves on and he says, hey, would you wash me? Which is, again, is this idea of really... um, 
think of like a washing machine, but back in the day, they would go down to the river and they would kind of take these two rocks, you know, or they take the coals and they kind of beat it against a rock or whatever, that, you know, that kind of an idea. And, and David is saying, would you wash me? Hey, would you take me down to the river and will you just cleanse me? In fact, when it's, it's interesting that in the Hebrew, this is even an imperative, meaning it's a command. In other words, here it's, it's speaking of David's earnestness and pleading that it's not that he's commanding God, hey, God, I command you to do this, as much as, hey, God, I am so desperate. I'm just begging you. Hey, I, I'm just absolutely positively have to have this. Would you come in and would you take my life and would you wash me? Would you take me down? And like a like a laundry person, would you would you really wash my life thoroughly? In other words, let there not be a single ounce, not, not to, let there even be a single speck of disgust or problems in my life. Remove from me my iniquity is what David is saying. And that idea of iniquity is this idea of perverseness or depravity or iniquity. So here's David crying out, oh God, would you, would you take my life and would you bring me down to the river and would you scrub my life and every ounce of perverseness, depravity or iniquity, hey God, would you like purge from my life? And then David declares, would you cleanse me from my sin? Hey, would you cleanse me? Would you purify me? Hey, would you pronounce me clean? And again, this idea of cleansing uh, was used oftentimes in the performance of a ceremony where we're making sure that something is pure and spotless. And so David says, hey, would you not only purge and scrub out the junk of my life, but would you cleanse me? Would you purify me from all sin? That this sinful condition that I have, this desire for my own self and selfishness and pride, God, would you just get rid of all of it? For I acknowledge my transgressions. Hey, I recognize that I am full of rebellion and sin. It is is just constantly before me. And God, I'm asking you, I am just, oh, I'm begging you, would you remove that from my life? Isn't that a beautiful plea and cry? I would, I would ask that if you find yourself, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin, would you pray that prayer to God and just cry out like David saying, God, would you come in and not just forgive me, but would you obliterate all the darkness? Hey, would you just exterminate and blot out and destroy and obliterate all that rebellious, selfish, prideful, just arrogant self of, my, of me? That God, I need you. I, I cannot do this outside of you. So God, I just fully surrender my life. And I repent and ask that you would move mightily in my life. Oh, and I would encourage you to read all of Psalm 51. For the heart of David is that, oh, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And would you remember, hey, would you just know that God is willing that there is no sin, there is no transgression so great that he is unwilling to forgive us. That is so phenomenal. That, that there is nothing that you have done that he is not willing to just forgive. That when God forgives, he forgives extravagantly. Oh, what tremendous news is that? I just love that reality. May we walk in that reality today. And may that cause us to really turn our gaze upon him, not only in desperation and clinging and say, God, change my heart, oh God. But you realize that when he forgives you, the only thing that should come out of our lives is praise. 
because, wow, I have been forgiven. That the God of the universe, whom I have shaken my fist in rebellion, hey, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, and I am forgiven, and I can walk in freedom, in triumph, in hope, in peace, in life, in Christ Jesus. Oh, what an amazing reality. So let us not wallow in despair. Hey, let us not just succumb to depression over, oh no, look at what I've done in the past. Hey, may we take our past and throw it upon the feet of Jesus at the foot of the cross, ask for forgiveness, repent, but believe upon Christ Jesus that we might walk in newness of life. And then may our life be unto the praise and the glory of Christ Jesus from this point forward. Oh, that we may walk in the truth and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow, I want that for you. And what an amazing reality that when I look back upon my life, that all of all of what God has done in my life, all, all that he has forgiven in my life, I want to live to the praise of his glory. Well, I hope that's been an encouragement to you to find yourself afresh at the foot of the cross. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 109 for episode 109. Well, over the next couple of episodes, I want to flesh this idea out a little bit more. So what I want us to talk through over these next two or three episodes is this idea of, okay, now that I've asked God for forgiveness, sometimes I need to be reconciled to the people around me. Sometimes I need to be forgiven or ask for forgiveness for the people around me that I have hurt or who have hurt me. So join me in these next couple of episodes as we take this idea of just the sin and the forgiveness and the restoration and the redemption to another level as we apply it outward to the people around us. Well, until then, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.